Welcome to another quarantine episode of Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasedirana.com. Life continues to be hectic, but I'm glad to be able to bring you this show this week. Before we get into it, though, I do want to take a moment to remember Catherine Dow. Catherine was the mother of David Dow, who was taken from us much too soon and whose legacy has been greatly helping Valley Free Radio over the last few years. She was also the mother of Mike Dow, who is a host on Civil Politics on Valley Free Radio and one of my best friends. She was a smart, caring woman who lived a full life, but it is still sad that I'll no longer be able to visit with her to have dinner every once in a while when I'm back east. It's times like these when we are reminded to connect a little bit more with our loved ones and to check in on people who we haven't talked to for a while. I know I've been remiss in that way because I no longer hang out in places that I used to before the pandemic began. I hope you are all hale and healthy and that you will continue to be for the conceivable future. I think it's important that we all try to be a little bit more connected to one another since we are very much being pulled apart by distance in very real and concrete ways. And so, um, yeah, I just wanted to um, speak about her because she was a really wonderful and amazing person and she really deserves to be memorialized. Okay. So let's switch gears. Uh, Let's start tonight's stories with good news. Let's move into the good news. Wolverines have hopefully returned to Mount Rainier after 100 years of being absent. A Wolverine mother and her two kits have been spotted by conservationists on a trap camera. This is the first time a reproductive female has been seen in the area in over a century. Despite being an awesome and iconic animal, wolverines are actually quite rare. In the entire U.S., it's estimated that just 300 to 1,000 are roaming the contiguous United States. Now, part of this is that population density for these animals is very small. According to the National Park Service, Density can be anywhere from 6.2 individuals for every 600 square miles of ideal habitat to just 0.3 individuals in less suitable areas. Wolverines are known for their appetites and their appetites lack of discernment. Uh, They will eat carrion, nuts and berries, prey on all sorts of rodents from mice and marmots to squirrels and hares, and will even sometimes prey on porcupines. As a top-level predator, they are generally thought to be a sign of a healthy ecosystem, and their absence indicates potential problems. So finding a breeding female in the Mount Rainier area may just be a good sign for that ecosystem. Chip Jenkins, superintendent at Mount Rainier National Park, noted in a press release that... When we have such large ranging carnivores present on the landscape, we know that we're doing a good job of managing our wilderness. 
According to the National Park Service, the wolverines were discovered thanks to the Cascades Carnivore Project. This is an NGO that's led by conservationist Jocelyn Aikens. Made up of scientists and volunteers, the project is dedicated to restoring the ecosystem of the Cascade Mountains, which stretches from British Columbia to Northern California, in order to make it hospitable to not only wolverines, but also fishers, the Cascade Red Fox, and the Canada Lynx. These high elevation animals are more at risk because of their specialization and their sensitivity to climate change. So the group began setting up camera traps two years ago in order to try to identify individual wolverines by their distinctive, by the distinctive patterns on their chest. They were excited to see a lactating female on the camera trap and hope that this means that she's living in the area. Now the area where the uh, individual was found is currently being kept secret. Uh, they don't want anyone to go and try and snap pictures or do anything like that that could potentially disturb the animals. But uh, they are monitoring it and they do encourage people that if they are out in the Pacific Northwest and happen to come across uh, an animal in the Cascades, that they should submit their photos or the photos of footprints to the online wildlife observation database for the NPS. Now, wolverines, besides being frankly adorable, are known for being quite aggressive. <laughs> I always wonder what it is about the idea of why so many incredibly adorable animals that you just want to hug and squeeze are also basically incredibly dangerous <laughs> but that's a uh that's a story for another day because i don't know that we have any good explanation for why exactly that is but wolverines generally weigh between 20 and 40 pounds but have been known to defend their territory or a carcass from the likes of wolves or even bears of course, it's just mostly displays of hissing and moving around and they, they'll stand up on their back legs and kind of walk towards the other animal to look as big as they possibly can. Uh, they don't really do much actual fighting. They're really just trying to be scary enough to give the opponent a sense of threat. Um, and so... Again, they're not nearly as dangerous, but they are aggressive. And so they will do these aggressive displays pretty easily. Um, and they have pretty vicious claws. So you definitely wouldn't want to try and uh, say, oh, well, you know, I know this, that's all just bluster. And so I will uh, continue to try and, you know, get to the animal at some point in some way. That animal will probably hurt you badly if you did that. Um, but of course, you probably won't see one given the fact that they are very uh, elusive and very solitary. Park ecologist Tara Chestnut noted in the press release that wolverines are solitary animals and despite their reputation for aggressiveness in popular media, they pose no risk to park visitors. If you are lucky enough to see one in the wild, it will likely flee as soon as it notices you. See, 
no thing to be worried about. Um, even though if you get to see one, you should definitely try and take a picture because they're the cutest. <laughs> and I de definitely recommend that if you need to pick me up to uh, Google some photos of wolverines, especially wolverine kits. They have adorable little paws and yes, um, but I digress. <laughs> uh, hopefully this is a good sign that they will continue to repopulate the area and that this will uh, also encourage, that this is an encouraging um, idea or sign that other animals, such as those foxes and lynx, might be able to move back into the area because it is now able to support those uh, medium-sized predators. Okay, so that's good news and obviously adorable. So let's talk about another animal that's known for being adorable and also not so lovey-dovey. Um, <laughs> even though people probably think that they are, uh, we're going to talk about koalas. Um, and so you may not know that they're pretty grumpy. They're grumpy little fellows and <laughs> they generally are not, uh, into being touchy-feely either, though obviously they're a lot less aggressive and they're a lot less active than wolverines. But they've got a big problem. These cute but endangered animals have been really being devastated by a disease one might not expect them to ever encounter. Koalas have a chlamydia problem. And of course, you may know this if you follow a certain uh, comedian who has talked about this and uh, there's actually a research center in uh, Australia dedicated to him for the study of koalas and helping make them safer. Um, so, you know, uh, it turns out that it's one of the leading causes of depth for these grumpy little darlings. Chlamydia in both humans and koalas is a sexually transmitted disease which can lead to infertility and permanent blindness. If you've ever seen the exploitation movie Sex Madness, I believe that's what it was, you'll know about the awful consequences of untreated chlamydia. And of course, it's very much dramatized there, but before we had uh, the ability to treat the infection using antibiotics, it actually was a pretty dangerous and scary disease for humans. And so it's also a scary and dangerous disease for koalas. Luckily, koalas can be treated the same way that we are. So humans are actually infected by chlamydia trachomatis, while koalas are infected by chlamydia pecorum. And unfortunately, even though they have different names, again, they work pretty much the same. But again, antibiotics that now allow humans to escape the serious harms of the disease also work on koalas. The problem has been, though, that several of them have side effects, which can sometimes be severe, including disrupting their gut bacteria, again, like humans who uh, are often have that problem when they take antibiotics, 
but it's really, really bad for koalas because, of course, that can hinder their ability to digest eucalyptus, which is, as you probably know, the cornerstone of their diet and a notoriously hard plant to digest. And so they actually use their gut bacteria in order to help them process the um, eucalyptus, which is basically mildly poisonous <laughs> and doesn't have a lot of nutritive value, which is why they're a lot less feisty than wolverines, because, of course, wolverines are eating a completely um, omnivorous diet, whereas koalas are mostly munching on a low-quality, slightly noxious uh, leaf. And so definitely a big difference there. And so researchers have been testing whether, whether or not two antibiotics that are most frequently used to treat koalas are good for them, basically. And they found that one is much better suited for the job than the other. They tested chlormethanicol and doxycycline and found that doxycycline was a more reliable treatment with few side effects. Again, much like humans, koalas can be affected by chlamydia either via sexual contact or by being born to a mother who is already infected. And we don't know quite why exactly they are so susceptible. It may be linked actually to a virus that's in the same family as HIV, which would be really interesting. And of course, we know that there are other um, animals that have that are prone to diseases like that. So, uh, for instance, there is FIV, which is feline immunodeficiency uh, virus. And so cats can have something that is in the same family as HIV. And so that family is unfortunately really good at making animals susceptible to other diseases. The work was conducted by Elliot Grossman, a graduate student in the Cummings Veterinarian School at Tufts University, with Assistant Professor Adam South and in collaboration with veterinarian Rosie Booth, who is Director of Australia Zoo's Wildlife Hospital in Birwa, Australia. And so the hospital treats between 300 and 500 koalas each year with around 40% of those animals being infected with venereal disease. The wildlife hospital veterinarians had a pretty strong suspicion that chloramethanicol was causing more side effects and had potentially worse survival rates than doxycycline, Grossman said in a statement, but there was no published research comparing the two treatments. And so Grossman and South reviewed and analyzed 311 cases of koalas with chlamydia and tracked which interventions they were given and whether or not they were successfully treated. They found animals given chloramethanicol were more likely to suffer from what's called treatment failure, where the infection was not quelled with the first course of antibiotics. In addition, they were more likely to develop a host of side effects, including diarrhea, yeast infections, depression, dehydration, and bone marrow dysfunction, according to Grossman. 
Those that were given doxycycline, on the other hand, were more likely to not suffer side effects. Hundreds of koalas throughout Australia have benefited from the research that has indicated that doxycycline is currently a better antibiotic to treat koalas with chlamydiosis than the previously widely used chloramethanicol, Booth said in a statement. And so that's really exciting. Um, The paper is still winding its way through peer review, but the nice thing is is because they were working with actual veterinarians and because the side of the um, findings were so strong, they're already moving towards using more doxycycline to treat koalas in Australia and it's already having benefits. So that's a huge, huge thing because again, 40% of the animals they see have been infected and it's not just a thing that you should ignore because it can be really harmful to the animals and of course if you lose koalas that's kind of a bad thing for Australia since they are one of Australia's most iconic animals. Um, Also they're cute and we shouldn't let them die and yes I also believe we shouldn't let Uh, ugly things die, but I'm just, no, you know, you're much more likely to want to cuddle a koala than you are to want to cuddle, say, uh, some sort of parasite or something like that. (laughs) For many reasons. (laughs) Okay, so um, that is very exciting. Good news on the mammals slash marsupial front. Uh, And we're going to talk about even more good news on the mammal front. And so we're actually going to stay in uh, the uh, South Pacific. And we're going to talk about New Guinean singing dogs. And so these dogs have a haunting plaintiff whale, uh, which actually set my cat's teeth on edge last night when I listened to it. Uh, I actually listened to it and my cat immediately started looking around the room like, what is that? I do not understand. Um, I will try and cue it up for you um, at the end of the story. Um, But obviously I'm not recording this in the studio, so it's going to be, the quality won't be as good as it would be in the studio. Um, and so these dogs have this really amazing, uh, sound that they make. And it turns out that the wild population of these dogs had thought to be extinct for decades. And it's only now that they're being able to be, uh, and that now you could only hear them in zoos. The dogs are closely related to dingoes, and researchers have been exploring reports that a population of so-called highland wild dogs is actually singing dogs. And so the population is located near the Grossberg Mine, one of the largest gold and copper mines in the world. Now, it's not clear when the dogs would have first arrived on the island, though dingoes are thought to have reached Australia around 3,500 years ago. So the idea is that these dogs were basically brought there very early on and that they're not just modern dogs that have been, uh, that are in villages and things like that, but they're an actual population of dogs that have been uh, 
endemic to the to um, New Guinea for you know at least a couple of thousands of years, and so the researchers have uh, noted that the dogs, which are tan, short-haired, and around the size of a border collie, probably reached the island at around the same time in boats. So obviously the same way people reach these islands, they, uh, the Polynesians were amazing uh, navigators and still are obviously those who continued the tradition. Uh, and so they were able to find all of these islands in the South Pacific and populate them. And obviously they brought their animals with them in order to populate these new places. Uh, for better and for worse, obviously, as we know, uh, in introducing species onto islands is not necessarily the best thing to do uh, a lot of the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, as we know, as we have seen time and time again, uh, this is not always the best way to go about doing things. Uh, however, obviously, people are always going to have done that to bring things with them as they moved into new areas. And so uh, captive populations consist of anywhere between 200 and 300 dogs in zoos and sanctuaries throughout the world. Now, wild populations were thought to have been last seen in the 1970s. However, rumors have circulated among locals that the dogs have been heard occasionally over the years. One possible candidate was, again, the so-called Highland Wild Dog. This is another obscure dog known only from anecdotal stories and two photographs taken in 1989 and then again in 2012. And so to determine if these dogs were still in the wild and if they were indeed actually singing dogs, James McIntyre, director of the Southwest Pacific Research Foundation and founder-director of the Field Research New Guinea Highland Wild Dog Foundation, <sighs> led an expedition to the highlands of Papua near the Grassberg Mine, with the collaboration of scientists from the University of Papua to photograph and collect fecal samples from 15 highland wild dogs. And then two years later, they managed to trap and collect blood samples from three of the animals. And so the animals' genes were sequenced and compared to that of 16 captive singing dogs, 25 dingoes, and more than 100 dogs from 161 other breeds. They found that the highland and singing dogs had almost identical DNA profiles. Both are closely related to dingoes and slightly more distantly related to dogs from East Asia, such as the Chow Chow, Akita, and Shiba Inu. And of course, uh, the Shiba Inu is known for its distinctive vocalizations as well. And so this is a very exciting turn of events for the singing dogs because their low numbers in captivity have led to problems with inbreeding. The Highland dogs have a bit of interbreeding with village dogs, but they are essentially the same, according to study co-author Elaine Ostrander, a geneticist at the U.S. National Human Genome Research Institute. This would make them, quote, a fantastic population for conservation biology, she said. Researchers had feared that singing dogs would soon have trouble breeding if they could not be bred with 
another genetic line. And so these Highland dogs really could help preserve the population and insert that much needed fresh genetic diversity. Ostrander also suggests that further study of the dog's genome might reveal how and why the dogs have vocalizations that are, quote unquote, like nothing else we've heard in nature. Now, of course, as with many things, not everyone is convinced, not everything is as cut and dry as others. And so Peter Dwyer, a zoologist from the University of Melbourne, believes that the dogs do not represent a distinct ancient lineage of dogs, but rather are descended simply from village dogs. However, Claudio Solero, a conservation biologist at Oxford University and the chair of the Canid Specialist Group at the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, said that the study confirms the close relatedness between Australian and New Guinea dogs, the most ancient quote-unquote domestic dogs on Earth. And this is from the, an interview um, in the New York Times. Now, of course, clearly further research will be needed in order to determine their ultimate origins, but it's nice to see that there is hope for the current captive population to have fresh genetic diversity added to it, because whether or not they are some sort of distinct ancient breed, they're still a breed of dog, and they're a beautiful breed of dog that uh, deserves to be kept, and especially since they have that amazing... Um, special uh, nature to their song. All right, so we're going to try and play the song uh, for you, uh, or their their howls, I should say. It's not really singing. Uh, it just sounds a bit ethereal, like singing. As you can hear, it's pretty distinctive. Um, it's definitely not anything that's unnatural. It's just, you know, distinctive. <laughs> okay, so hopefully that came through okay. And we are now going to move on from fuzzy animals to birds. And let's start with a story that hits a few repeated notes around here, unfortunately. Not only does it reference birds, which as longtime listeners will know is a personal favorite, it also points to sexism that has colored our perceptions of said birds. Karen Odom, who earned a PhD from the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, wrote a paper in 2014 that first systematically showed that not only do male birds sing, but also females. Up to 70% of female birds sing. Her research also showed that the common ancestor of all modern birds must have been a co-ed singer, which was considered revolutionary thinking at the time. 
Her research was conducted with Kevin Ullman, Omland, Professor of Biological Sciences at UMBC. A new paper by Casey Haynes, also of UMBC, has documented the fact that women are more likely to be authors, and especially first authors, on papers concerning the song habits of female birds. The findings were published in Animal Behavior and remind us that diversity is key to understanding what is truly happening because the whole pursuit of science is meant to be a way to remove our biases in order to be able to see what is really there. But if everyone in the room has the same lived experiences, they're going to have the same kinds of biases. And that makes it much harder for us to be able to strip off those biases. And so the three researchers, joined by Evangeline Rose, a current PhD candidate in Omlin's lab, examined 59 birdsong papers published between 1997 and 2016. They found that women made up 56% of all authors on the subject, as opposed to 40% when looking at the full body of ornithological papers on birdsong. Women accounted for 68% of first author positions, indicating that they were the lead researcher, compared to 44% more generally. Thus, men were 24 percentage points less likely than women to lead a study looking at female birdsong, and 16% less likely to contribute in any way to the study of female birdsong as it compared to general birdsong publications. I believe this paper is a great example of how diversity expands the type of research scientists are doing, Haynes said. Female bird song research has been underrepresented in the literature until only recently. A diverse pool of researchers may result in new questions being asked and new approaches to answering these questions. I would love to see this type of research applied in other areas of STEM. In general, research has found that women are more likely to study females, both human and animal, which we should all know have traditionally been understudied and under-engineered for. Every time I get into a car, for instance, I remember that it is engineered for a man, a man who is taller than I am and thinner, but a man who is taller than I am. And so, in addition, women are also more likely to study species which are well less, that are less well known. Um, and they are also more likely to have women co-authors, which helps those women to expand their opportunities and also to perhaps secure funding for future research. Now, the researchers know that this study is imperfect because, among other things, our data represent gender in a binary framework, which is not reflective of society, potentially resulting in misgendering authors who are non-binary or gender minorities, the paper states. Gender minority authors make important contributions to science and are a vital part of increasing diversity. 
we recommend that more detailed future studies provide opportunities for authors to self-identify their gender to avoid the possibility of misgendering. So that's very cool. Uh, because I think that's a huge thing that society needs to adopt. And of course, we're still having that argument, even though it seems ridiculous to me that there even is an argument. Um, but the idea that people can choose something other than male or female should be a pretty much a no-brainer as far as I'm concerned. But obviously, lots of people don't agree with me for some reason. I don't know why, because I'm clearly right. <laughs> okay. Um, despite these drawbacks, they are unfortunate that obviously we don't have any way to adapt to right now because there's just no way to track that information because it's not asked for. The paper still points out important trends. Personally, it was amazing to find that the percentage of women who hold first author positions on female birdsong has increased so much within the last 20 years, Haynes said. I think it speaks volumes on how far both female birdsong and women in science have become. Now, Omland is doing his part to be a ally uh, and has encouraged undergraduate students to actually publish papers. And so... Haynes is the first author on this paper. Undergraduate researchers have really influenced the trajectory of our lab's research by making consistent, significant contributions. It's essential that we continue to build environments where researchers from all backgrounds are encouraged to explore new ideas and ask new questions, Omland says. Not only will this enable them to reach their potential as scientists, but is also essential to expanding our knowledge of the world around us. Which is, of course, extremely important. Diversity is the only way that we are actually going to be able to figure out what is going on. Because the whole point of science, as I said before, is stripping away your biases to see what's actually there. And if everybody in the room is the same, those biases are not going to be seen. All right, we're going to take a short break and continue to talk about birds in just a minute. So please hang on. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. 
Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. And we are back. And we are still talking about birds. And we're actually going to go back to Australia. And even though we just talked about female bird song, we're actually going to talk about a paper that is discussing a male bird. Uh, It's fascinating, so it'll be okay. (laughs) We'll try and find some female bird song uh, to talk about in uh, the recent or in the uh, near future. So we are going to be talking about a delightfully named bird, the Willy Wagtail. Uh, And so it has been found to sing both during the day and at night. And it sings more when the moon is full. Researchers from the University of Melbourne noted that while singing is largely a daytime activity, at least 30% of birds also call at night, and the majority of these birds are active both during the day and at night. Now, Willy Wagtails have a twinkling song that birders say sounds like they're saying, sweet pretty creature and they are known as Shepherd's Companion because they spend large amounts of time around livestock and feast on the bugs that would otherwise prey on those farm animals. Despite this uh, good connotation, folklore of some indigenous people has suggested that the Willy Wagtail are secret stealers and harbingers of ill omen. Uh, They're a black and white bird, uh, blackbirds tend to get that kind of a rap. Um, I suspect they're also uh, related to magpies. And so, again, magpies are notorious for being uh, secret stealers, basically. <laughs> they like shiny things and they will take them. Um, <laughs> so it's not really surprising. And as we talked about, they sing during full moon nights. So that might also lend them to feel a bit creepy to people. Now, a lot of folklore concerning the moon is false, such as the idea that there are more uh, crashes or more crime on a full moon, um, 
the whole crime thing and the whole thing about going to the ER, more people going to the ER during the full moon, if you actually look at the statistics, it's never true. If you go and talk to people in the ER, they will tell you it is true. But if you actually look at the statistics from an outsider point of view, it turns out that there is no discernible pattern to any kind of influence by the moon. And so researchers were a little skeptical uh, because no one had ever done a study on this as to whether or not they actually did sing more during full moon nights. And so the researchers recorded the wagtails across the state of Victoria for three years and recently published their work in the journal Behavioral Ecology and Sociobiology. And they showed that they do indeed sing more during the full moon. They studied the birds for eight full lunar cycles from four sites in rural Victoria. They found that they increased the amount of time they sang at night in direct proportion to the brightness of the moon. They found that it was, again, males who invested in this singing, which starts in late winter or early spring. They suggest, therefore, that the activity might help the wagtails to increase their chances of producing offspring during the spring by, obviously, securing more female birds. The researchers suggest that the mating season might be limited, and thus the birds increase the hours of their singing in order to impress the most females. However, since the birds sing at night, whether they are alone or have a partner, it suggests that it might also be a territorial call rather than a love call. The next project is to look at whether or not urban light pollution is leading urban wagtails to indulge in less or more singing and if it changes their chances at mating. So that is going to be interesting and obviously I just really enjoy saying the word the uh, name Willy Wagtail um, and they're cute little birds so good on them. Okay so we're gonna go back to female birds now and it turns out that feeding birds in the winter tends to actually favor the survival of females in species where the males are more aggressive, such as chickadees and downy woodpeckers. Now, I don't mean that it then leads to the males dying. It means that more females will survive than would have done. Um, and the same amount of males generally will uh, survive, maybe a few more, but definitely it will save more females. Um, and so the males tend to dominate the best food resources and so they tend to be okay during the winter um, and so having bird feeders out helps female birds to maintain enough food to help them survive that winter chill now the birds survive cold winter nights by actually lowering their body temperature to expend less energy keeping it up at the higher temperature and keeping themselves warm Having access to extra food makes warming up from these episodes easier for females. And I'm happy to hear that because I obviously am a big bird feeder um, and I'm glad that it's helping them. Uh, I'm okay if it was just simply an excuse for me to watch and listen to them. I'm perfectly okay with that because I really like them. Um, but I'm glad that I can help out a little bit, especially since I do have several chickadees and downy woodpeckers who come to the bird feeder. 
and so birds in the northern hemisphere drop their temperature somewhat but apparently there is a hummingbird in peru that takes this to a whole new level now hummingbirds flourish in the high andes mountains of peru which is full of wildflower nectar and low on predators ideal conditions obviously except for that pesky cold weather of course hummingbirds are tiny so losing heat can be really devastating for them really easily and so it turns out that one hummingbird species the black metal tail was de- has developed a technique where they drop the temperature to under 38 degrees This is the lowest temperature ever recorded on a bird or non-hibernating animal, according to the research published in Biology Letters. They're cold as a rock, says Blair Wolf, a physiological ecologist at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. If you didn't know better, you'd think they were dead. Now, this is not the first time that toper or torpor has been observed in hummingbirds, but Wolf and his colleagues wanted to explore this phenomenon more closely. They placed 26 individuals from six species in cages overnight and inserted a miniature thermometer of sorts into their cloaca. Um, and in case you're not uh, all that familiar with bird anatomy, um, birds have a cloaca the same as reptiles and other animals and it's basically a uh, one-stop shopping um, opening in their posterior uh, that serves as both the end of their digestive tract and the opening uh, for them to engage in reproductive activities and so they found that the birds perched upright pointed their bills upward fluffed their feathers and ceased all movement and of course fluffing their feathers is one of those things that birds do in order to uh, trap some air in those feathers and thus add a little bit of insulation um, on the same kind of vein if you've ever been told if you didn't have extra insulation but you had a newspaper you can scrunch up newspapers and stuff them into your jacket and that creates air pockets which actually adds insulation to you um so that is basically what they're doing they've got their own uh ability to kind of puff up and create those air pockets of course they also puff up when they're trying to do displays so it's not only uh for helping with cold weather but anyways all of them entered a form of torpor but the black metal tail cooled from a daytime temperature of 140 degrees Fahrenheit to under 38 degrees Fahrenheit. Their heartbeat also decreased dramatically from as much as 1200 beats per minute to as low as 40 beats per minute. It's an astounding drop, Wolf says. It's a remarkable adaptation. They estimate that the birds are able to reduce their energy usage by around 95%, which helps them to live at 5,000 feet. Now, as the sun comes up, the hummingbirds begin to reheat, warming about a degree a minute by vibrating their muscles. You see the birds quivering there. Then all of a sudden, its eyes pop open and it's ready to go, Wolf says. And so again... 
they need the energy still to be able to do that um, muscle movement in order to actually warm themselves up. So that's why in the winter, it's good for the uh, birds to have uh, steady supplies of food. And um, again, I just want to take a minute to talk about bird names. Um, I didn't actually... I, I didn't do a full dive into this um, article, but there is a couple of um, articles talking about bird naming. And while these guys have fantastic names, um, there is some uh, movement in um, ornithological circles among sort of, frankly, the younger generation uh, to kind of look back at the names that we've given birds and contemplate whether or not they really should stay with those names. Um, a lot of them are specifically talking about birds that are named after specific people. Um, people like James John Audubon, who you would think is, you know, an absolute bastion who is unassailable. But uh, I don't want to get into it too much, but he did some bad stuff in his life. Um, and, you know, nothing that was considered out of the ordinary at the time, but in retrospect, is pretty um, unseemly. And so there was actually an article just recently about a decision that was reversed where there was a bird named after a Confederate soldier, uh, sorry, a Confederate general. And at first, they didn't want to change the name, but in the wake of recent events, they've reevaluated and decided to actually change the name. Um, and I think that uh, it's really an interesting conversation to have. I think that the uh, proponents make a really good point, which is that um, you don't need, birds should have um names that either are unique to themselves or are uh, descriptive. They don't need to have some person's name. And of course, that's all through taxonomy. And we need to probably reform all of taxonomy. But birds are pretty, uh, they're, they're a really easy one because a lot of animals, the uh, honorific is in the Latin name, which the general public doesn't use. But with birds, people use those names all the time. Um, and so I think it's really an interesting thing to see um, whether or not they will move more to do that. Okay, so we're still going to talk about hummingbirds for another minute. Researchers used hummingbirds to help them solve a mystery about starlings, swifts, and dippers who build nests behind waterfalls. It is not known, it was not known how birds were able to penetrate the curtains of water in order to reach their nests. They used hummingbirds as a model because they're closely related to swifts and they're actually smaller and easier to work with. The team worked with four Anna's hummingbirds, Calypte Anna, who were set up in an experimental chamber. The chamber had a feeder on one side and a perch on the other. Between the two was a three millimeter thick artificial waterfall created with a pump and a small water jet. Though smaller than what would be encountered in the wild, its flow was stronger than extreme rain. Now the birds all crossed without incident, according to a new paper in the Royal Society Open Science. 
But how they did it was, frankly, a complete surprise to the researchers, noted Victor Ortega Jimenez, a biologist at Kennesaw State University in Kennesaw, Wisconsin, and lead author of the study. The birds didn't speed up or fold their wings and pass through the waterfall like a bullet in the manner expected by the researchers. Now, one bird did enter the waterfall head on, but the rest slid in sideways, parting the water with one wing and then moving through the rest of their body using their other wing that was still in air. And so as the bird moves, one wing is always in the air, even if the other wing is in the waterfall. Nothing in the literature could predict that, Ortega Jimenez says. The researchers hypothesize that the birds use this unusual entry method in order to help maintain momentum. One wing is always generating thrust while the other wing is in the water, notes David Hu, a Georgia Institute of Technology mechanical engineer and a biologist who was not involved in the study. The researchers then looked at how insects might fare in the same test. They looked at fruit flies, house flies, green bottle flies, and a crane fly. The fruit flies and crane flies were both defeated instantly. Uh, the fruit flies were all just outright killed. Uh, several of the bottle and house flies managed to make it through only to immediately crash to the ground. Because falling water can represent several barriers to small insects, including bouncing off the water's surface tension, losing momentum, and them having to deal with the weight of individual drops, this means that they're much more likely to not be able to get through, suggesting to the researchers that waterfalls could serve as a protective barrier to nesting birds to shield them not only from attack by things like predators, uh, raptors for instance, but also to flying parasites. The next step for the researchers is to attempt to film swifts using drones. Hopefully the drones will be as agile as the birds and survive the deluge. Okay, let us move on now, uh, and I think finally, to talk about birds that live in wetlands. As we all know, wetlands continue to, frankly, disappear due to human activities and construction. It turns out that even though urban sprawl may be the cause of some wetland destruction, it has also, paradoxically, allowed certain wetland birds to survive by switching their foraging their foraging from wetland areas to human detritus. Researchers from Florida's Atlant from Florida Atlantic University's Charles E. Schmidt College of Science compared urban and wetland wood storks, Mycenteria americana, which are a large wading bird found throughout the southwestern swamps and wetlands of America. Publishing in scientific reports, they provide evidence and data to show how the birds are surviving and even thriving in cities by turning to foods such as chicken wings and hot dogs when little is available in nearby marshes. The researchers sampled 160 nests during the 2015-2016 nesting season. 106 were from three urban colonies, while the remaining 54 came from two natural wetland colonies in South Florida, where the Everglades are adjacent to large urban areas. 
visiting one or two times per week during the breeding season from May through from March through June, excuse me, they marked individual nests and collected information. They looked at the stork's productivity, body conditions, reproductive performance, variety of diet, and whether that diet changed and when the wetlands ceased to provide adequate foodstuffs. They found that the storks were able to use urban areas as a reservoir of food when natural food was scarce or unavailable. The ability to switch between the habitats allowed for better reproductive performance during periods when natural, when natural food was scarce. They also found that body condition was not affected by switching to what is essentially a junk food diet. During suboptimal conditions, urban birds expanded their diet to include more prey types, including anthropogenic food, suggesting that urban birds were able to exploit urban areas during low natural wetland prey ability, said Betsy A. Evans, PhD, a natural resources specialist with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and lead author. Uh, and so she also says the ability of urban birds uh, to switch their diets to include different prey types, such as human-provided food that included, again, chicken wings and hot dogs, likely allowed them to produce more chicks during natural wetland prey availability conditions than their non-urban counterparts. Apparently, they also increased their consumption of amphibians, such as frogs, in their diet. While frogs are everywhere in the area, they are 10 times more abundant in roadside-created wetlands such as swales, ponds, and canals, which suggests that the urban storks had adapted to foraging along these man-made water features. And so it turns out that uh, natural wetland birds paid a greater reproductive penalty during suboptimal conditions than their urban counterparts. And furthermore, again, this ability to switch diets between, res between resource pulses may reduce population fluctuations and lower risk of extinction. Now, this isn't an advertisement for cities uh, <laughs> as ideal habitats for wildlife, but it does show that some of this wildlife is smart enough and uh, quick enough to adapt to living next to urban areas. All right, that is all the time we have for tonight. Uh, I am almost certainly going to be back next week with a new show. So have a good week. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.